Welcome to the Martin Sibley Show. I'm Martin Sibley, and when I'm not running this podcast, I'm a blogger, a CEO, and an advisor to many organisations on the topics of inclusion and accessibility. But during this podcast, I'll be interviewing other disabled, successful and influential people, and really just trying to uncover their journeys and stories as a way of you being able to be entertained, I hope, but more so as a way of inspiring your own goals and giving solutions to some of the problems that you're maybe coming up against as well. So in this episode, I'm going to be interviewing Tony Heaton, who is an artist, an activist and an all-round nice guy. He's currently CEO for the Disability Arts Charity Shape and he was commissioned to create a sculpture for the London 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Games. So I've done all my research, got all the questions ready and I'm all set to head off and speak with Tony and I hope you thoroughly enjoy our conversation. Okay, so today's episode, we're welcoming Tony Heaton. Thank you for joining us, Tony. It's a pleasure, Martin. Good to talk to you. And um, the plan is to talk all things around arts and disability activism and anything else that we sort of fancy on our on our little chat today. So uh, it's no holds barred. Um, no. Great, great to have you on, though. It's been it's been a while since we had a, a proper catch up, so it's nice that we Indeed. can have a chin wag on the pod- podcast as well. Um, as I was as I was saying to you earlier on, really, the the overall point of the podcast is to share individual stories of successful people and for the listeners to have that sort of insights and takeaways that they can maybe apply to their own journey as well. So um, we've been often starting with the kind of backstory. So who is who, who is Tony, you know, a bit about your impairment, a bit about growing up and um, all of that world. Yeah, sure. Gosh, it's a long time ago. I'm going to try and remember <laughs> what life was like when I was young. I, I um, Okay, so I'm the eldest of three kids. I grew up in a happy working class household in the northwest of England. Um, I played in the woods. I was obsessed with bikes when I was young and that turned into motorbikes when I got to be about 11, I think. And it was at a time when, yeah, yeah, I was kind of young, but my dad had motorbikes, so I, I sort of you know, oil was in my blood really, so I was always in the shed with my dad. He was always, you know, had his mates around and they were always ripping motorbikes to bits and putting them back together. And um, he always said, you know, I once found you underneath the motorbike, which I'd obviously pulled over on myself when I was a, you know, kid, four or five or whatever. And so I said, well, that's obviously, you know, that's where it all started. Uh, I always loved bikes, you know, I think I learned to ride a push bike when I was four. And I got photographs of me sort of pedaling around, like still wearing a nappy almost. And, you know, I just loved bikes, cycling, and then motorcycles. So it was at a time when all the workers in the factories around me were getting rid of British motorcycles like BSAs, and they're all getting Honda 50s because they were much more easy to ride and they were much cheaper to manage I guess Mm -hmm. and they were the modern things so we could pick up motorbikes I think the cheapest motorbike I got was three pounds fifty or the equivalent of three pounds fifty three pounds ten bob so Mm -hmm. you know yeah and we used to you know me and my mates to rip all the heavy bits off strip them down and then we go scrambling in the woods and in the fields you know so I had a really a bit of a wild and free time as a kid Mm we weren't frightened of anything and we weren't frightened of anybody and I guess the world was a different place in many ways and uh, if you got chased by a police officer which you rarely did or never did you just um, you just drove across a field and through <laughs> some woods and um, you know out the other end really yeah so yeah carefree very carefree sounds like a great a, childhood <laughs> It was, it was. I feel sorry for kids today who sort of almost locked up in their own bedrooms with acres of technology. Mm-hmm. But hey, different worlds. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I had a motorcycle accident actually, which you know gave me a spinal injury. Mm-hmm. So I swapped my motorbike for an invalid carriage, little blue invalid carriage. <laughs> and um, 
it still had a, the equivalent of a motorcycle engine in it, so obviously that had to be tuned up by my mates, and we used to, you know, it used to be quite odd, I suppose, watching guys on motorbikes, and in the middle of this pack of motorcyclists was this very strange, small, blue, three-wheeled thing called an inland carriage. I recently made a sculpture out of one, which right. is called Gold Lame. I don't know whether you've seen it. I have, yes. But it's a... Yeah, invalid carriage suspended, pointing downwards like a spaceship coming to crash, with its uh, indicators and its lights flashing, <laughs> sprayed gold, called gold lame, which plays around with the word lame, lame lame. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Most of my sculpture fools around with with names and you know transitions and changes. Sure, we'll, we'll come on in a moment to, to, to sort of when you yeah. found the artistic um, career that you yeah, entered into a bit later yeah. on. Well, one thing I wanted to pick up at that point was um, something that often comes up in the sort of disability world is the, the, the different experiences of acquired disability and then having the disability always. So, you know, for yep. me, it's genetic. I was born with it very quickly. It was evident yep. that I was going to need the sort of um, support and inputs that I was going to go on to need. I mean, uh, well, what's your view looking back? Like, was there a, a period of adjustment or was it pretty, apart from the physical injury and recovery as best as you could, you know, what, did you find that you quite quickly cracked back on with life mentally? How was it? I did, actually. I'm quite an optimistic, um, tenacious and get on with it sort of person. Mm -hmm. So, and I was only young, you know, I was 16 going on 17, and I think when you're that age, you sort of just deal with whatever shit is thrown at you, really. Yeah. Um, I think it's easier uh, somehow. So, I mean, it was a catastrophic thing, and of course, people around me told me what a catastrophic thing it was, and it did, you know, massive changes in the sense that... Um, I couldn't get in my house. My dad used to carry me up to bed. Um, he made, you know, he got in his shed and made loads of wooden supports so I didn't drag the washhand basin off the wall the bathroom and I got something to lean on in the, you know, in the sh in the bath and the shower and stuff. I mean, he just got on and did it. There were no real support systems in those days. Quite quite extraordinary really, you know, yeah. how things have changed. I guess that's the sort of epitome of the social model, isn't it, that actually you, you know, sort of mentally, you were very resilient and optimistic to just crack back on with how things were now going to be with the physical you know, change that you'd gone through, but then actually it was the access to the house and the bathroom and and then the, the need for support systems that, that were disabling yeah. you, in inverted commas. Yeah. Well, I just did my exams at school in the hospital, and um, you know, I went. I don't know whether I had some time out, and I went to art college. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of. I mean, I played the drums. My, my other great passion, alongside motorcycles, was music. So I was really, you know, really keen on music, and I bought a set of drums with my paper money. I, I used to do two paper rounds in the morning instead of one um, because I could do them on my motorbike. I didn't tell anybody I did them on my motorbike. <laughs> and I did the two paper rounds that were furthest from the shop so they got paid extra money <laughs> for them. And they were sort of rural. And uh, and I used to just push my motorbike out the shed but mum and dad didn't hear me at half past five, quarter past six in the morning or whatever awful time it was. <laughs> push it up the street about you know, 100 metres, and then fire it up, and off we went. When I got to the paper shop, I left it outside, obviously. Went in, got my stuff. You didn't have to wear a helmet in those days, Martin. You know, you just got on with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, actually, because I know, you know, as we've mentioned now, you went off to art college, and obviously that must have been the, the beginnings of your art career in a way, but there's also that yeah. entrepreneurial side that at the end of the day, you know, we do all need income to live <laughs> off, and you, you still found ways of earning money alongside your artistic and creative endeavours as well. Do you know what, I never thought about that entrepreneurial thing until you said, until you said that, yes I did two paper rounds, most people did one, <laughs> and I did the two that were the most, you know, the most um, onerous. Yeah. Um, the guy, the purpose shop guy, never 
how do you, how the hell do you manage to do these two? You know, because they were a long way away. Because um, you never knew I did it on a motorbike. It made it a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. That's so, yeah, entrepreneurial from, from 12, I guess. <laughs> Negotiating to buy old motorcycles at 11, 12 <laughs> years old. Yeah. Well, I guess, yeah. I played the drums. I used to play. Well, I, I played the drums with a guy who played the organ, the Hammond organ in nightclubs. And uh, I was the drummer. I'm still only about 14, 15 years old. And we jump in his minivan with my drums in the back and we go and play till about one thirty, two o'clock in the morning at these really seedy night little nightclubs. <laughs> and uh, you know, full of you know, dance floor was full of people dancing with somebody else's wives, I guess. <laughs> I didn't care. I just wanted to play the drums. Uh, that that's passion, isn't it? It's back to that. Yeah, I think yeah. when people get hold of something that ignites them, and from the inside, they'll they'll do anything to do that. And it sounds like yeah. that was one of those moments. So, well, when you went off to yeah. art college, I mean, I, I totally get that the musical stuff really fits within that broader creative and artistic world, anyway. But you know, how, how did that then sort of bridge you into your kind of career as an artist that came afterwards? Well, it's the first time I felt limitations, actually, because my mates were going off to London art colleges or, you know, other places, and I, I was, I felt, because I really felt I needed some support, that I ended up going to Southport Art College, which was, I was in the spinal unit at Southport, so I really looked for places quite close to where I lived. Mm -hmm because I knew that I could, you know, I had an invalid carriage, I knew I could get in and out of my mum and dad's house, I knew they were there as a backup if I needed them, and I just didn't feel I could just disappear, you know, to London, I, did, I didn't, I, it just wasn't feasible that a young wheelchair user from Lancashire could just suddenly descend, apply for a college that wasn't accessible, trying to find a cheap flat in a building that wasn't accessible. Mm. You know, we have to remember that the world was not as it is today. Yeah, yeah. You know, though I remember fighting for drop curbs in Lancashire. Wow. There wasn't even drop curbs, you know. It is astonishing when you think about it. Yeah, I know. You, know, you might have a zebra crossing, but no drop curbs, you know. Yeah, I know when I've sort of chatted to people, um, you know, I'm, I'm 33, so I was sort of born, born in the early 80s, and, you know, the friends of my age were all sort of, you know, still very much looking for the bits that are not as good as they should be, and we're quite rightly demanding that they're improved. But I think it's also good to look back on how far we have come and how much has yeah. progressed as well. It sort of gives you that sense that it is also possible because you can see what has been achieved as well before. Yeah, well, I mean, I was uh, I, I was disabled person before you were born <laughs> by quite a lot of years. Yeah. Um, when when were you born again? Say again. Early eighties, eighty three. Early eighties. Yeah. Wow, I'd already been born. I'd already been disabled thirteen years. Right. I was an old hand that'd been a crit <laughs> by the time you got born. <laughs> so with, with the kind of artistic world, and I mean, I guess you're saying that you didn't, yeah. London wasn't quite on the cards at that point. Um, you know, yeah. an option whether that was absolutely definite, whether you maybe weren't quite ready. Uh, I totally hear that the barriers were, were very huge at that moment. But uh, what, yeah. what is that sort of then you turn to the artistic as a kind of substitute, or was that still a passion, even though you you know you might have wanted to go to London? You know, I felt uh, I wanted to go art college. I I just felt that um, a regional art college would not be as, you know, would not be as good as going to a London art college. But it, you know, that was the, that was the option. Better to go to art college than not go to art college. You know, mm -hmm. so uh, and I enjoyed being at art college. Uh, um, I, I, again, it was really tricky because it wasn't massively accessible. And uh, I remember the the principal of the college had a car parking space reserved right next to the door, so he had to vacate his car parking space for me. And he also had his own toilet and sort of dressing room mm -hmm. uh, next to his office, and he also had to vacate that for me as well because <laughs> I couldn't get into the regular toilets, and um, there wasn't really much parking space around there, only staff parking. 
So uh, as you can imagine, Martin, I was really popular with the principal of the art college <laughs> at the time. Unsettling the hierarchy. Well, you know, the, some scruffy, long-haired, crippled yobbo had just nicked his <laughs> parking space and he's, you know, was making a mess of his toilet. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he didn't have a lot of time for me, really. But I had a great time at art college. Yeah, I, mean, I think and, about uh, a few people talk about college and uni uh, negatively. It does seem to be that period of life that, you know, whichever sort of type of college and uni people go to, but that sort of finding yourself, having fun, exploring yeah. um, sexually as well very often. Um, and, and, yeah, it's kind of the springboard onto independence. Yeah, absolutely. And you were actually, I got a grant, you know, I was paid to go to college. Oh, wow, that's nice. I, I didn't leave with debts, you know, I, I left with, um, you know, with money in the bank, I guess. Yeah. So then so from graduating, then, I mean, did you sort of, did going, because you know, I think you would self-determine that you had a career as an artist for quite a few years after college, but was that sort of by plan and design, or was it sort of just going with the flow and what happened? Oh, God, no, there's no plan or design, you know. <laughs> I think most people, most people look back on their lives and then try and, uh, uh, try and apply a plan to it. Now, um, uh, I think you plan retrospectively sometimes. Yeah. No, in the early days, I just um, I just fooled around a lot, really. <laughs> I I, um, I managed a, a a progressive rock band. We went round, uh, um, well, mostly in Holland, and um, so I drove I drove a van with all the gear in it, uh, and the wheelchair chucked in the back. Slept in the van. Wow. You did what you do when you're in Holland in the very early 1970s. I can imagine, I can imagine. I mean, that's also very interesting that before you said that London seemed a bit of a, you know, far-fetched idea before college, but then suddenly yeah. afterwards there you were managing a progressive rock band and driving to Holland and sleeping in the car. So something yeah. must have clicked, you know, within yourself about going further afield. I just think, Education expands your horizons. I know yeah. that's a really corny thing to say, it's true, but it's true. You know, I, I was a working class guy. Actually, Southport, which was only 20 miles from where I lived, was a different world. The art college was full of middle class kids. And I remember, you know, one of my, when I first got to art college, this guy said, oh, come back to our house. And, um, and he, I, I walked with two calipers in those days and two, big sticks to get in and out of college and when I was in college I used my wheelchair for generally moving about but and he was saying do, can you manage a can you manage to fire escape and I'm thinking I don't know whether I can or not so he <laughs> went to his house and we went up, I said why are we going up the fire escape he said oh I, I got the top floor of the house and he basically lived in the three-story massive you know Georgian house in about an acre of land and he just had the full top floor of his house. Wow. You know, he had two bedrooms, kitchen, bathroom, you know. And basically we wandered up the the, the fire escape so that we, so his parents didn't know we were in. And, <laughs> well, they knew as soon as we got in because the record player went on and, you know, Jimi Hendrix was playing at whatever decibels. <laughs> and I just thought, I share a bedroom with my young brother. You know, I share a bedroom with my kid brother and he's got you know, the equivalent of our house to himself. <laughs> and, you know, you suddenly connect into a group of people who have had massive amount of privilege, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it does widen your, um, well, the view of the possibilities. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm, with the art, and I know the, your, your main sort of area within the artistic world is uh, as a sculpture. And I think I read that... Um, one of the things that I believe you were at college when it happened, but you went over the sand with the calipers and your crutches. That's right. And it was yeah. you, you tell the story. Well, it, I mean, it's very intuitive of my, of, he, he was the, um, I don't, I can't remember his official title now, but he was, uh, oh, I'll think of it at some point, but he was like the guy that ran the sculpture department. Okay. And uh, he, he wasn't much older than me because I went to art college, then I worked and bummed about a bit, and then I got to a stage in my life where I thought, Do you know what, I really need to, I was married at the time, 
I'd got a young child, I needed to, I'd actually run a record shop, I'd done quite a few things, and I thought, you know, I really need to develop my education. Mm. So I, I, I decided to go to university, and that was quite a few years after I'd been to art college, okay. and I thought, I really want to study sculpture um, as a, at a university, rather than just do what I'm doing now. But again, it was a revelation going to university, meet, again meeting kids who've got massive aspirations and had got massive amount of privilege. And I was older than them, so I was a mature student. And, um, and I was working while I was at university, so I never, I never stopped working. I worked for myself, I freelanced, yeah. I um, painted signs, I did graphic design, I did loads of things to earn money. And um, and I went to university because what was astonishing for me is like university's ten week terms, you know. So I'm saying, hang on. So you're telling me that I've got to out of fifty two weeks in a year, I just have to be at university for thirty weeks? <laughs> and they said, well, yeah, but you don't really have to come for thirty weeks because you know you get study weeks, and if you've only got a lecture on Tuesday, well, you don't necessarily have to come in on Monday. <laughs> and if you've got a practical project that you want to build in your own workshop at home, then you don't need to come at all. Happy days. <laughs> I know it was amazing. So um, it was very flexible, and uh, and I really enjoyed it. But he was the, he was called the fellow in sculpture, and he was not much older than me. And uh, we did we went on Morecambe Bay. And uh, and we were making and environmental sculpture was very uh, um, current, very you know contemporary. Then there was an artist called Andy Goldsworthy. He worked in the northwest. He did a lot of work on beaches and in you know in rivers and lots of environmental work going on at the time. And we were wandering across, you know, maybe four or five students and and Paul Hatton, who was the fellow in sculpture. And he was saying, you know, what's interesting about the sand is that I can always tell where you've been because mm. your feet stick out sideways and I can see the marks that your crutches leave. <laughs> and I think that's a really interesting, you know, your your transition through space is different than other people's. Yeah. And maybe you should exploit that difference. And of course, that's what disability arts is all about. Mm. It's It's about what is different about disabled people. And what's really interesting about that, and what's how does that tell people about our lives, or you know how does it become political in some way? Yeah, and is. that really that was my paradigm shift, really. And mm -hmm. I just went away at most obvious and basic thing, which is I just made plaster casts of my footprints and my crutch prints in the sand, and I reassembled them in a gallery. Mm -hmm. So basically, came through one door, and there was these plaster of Paris footprints and crutch prints uh, just laid out on the floor. It's just a pattern from one doorway to another doorway. Brilliant. And th and that was probably the first disability-related piece of stuff, you know, identity thing. You know, that was my identity. Yeah, I think you know, when I was chatting to Phil Friend on one of the previous podcasts, there was a lot of parallels that in the end he realised that the part of him that was with an impairment was actually the, the positive and something that should be celebrated and used within his world of business. And it sounds like, you know, similarly in the, in the art and the political world, it was, you know, rather than trying to hide any part of that difference and almost be a bit awkward and ashamed of it is to really celebrate yeah. that difference and educate society that difference is okay you know we shouldn't be scared yeah. of difference and i think that's really nice to be able to to have that conversation via the medium of sculpture and art as well yeah i mean my generation were desperate to be different, you know. The last thing you wanted to look like was your dad. <laughs> you wanted different clothes, we had long hair, beards, you know, all that stuff. So being different was um, was very cool, actually. Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. So, yeah. So, I mean, after I that, that time, um, I guess it's sort of, you know, the, the, I've read up on multiple 
bits of work you've done, whether they were, you know, installations and commissions and all the rest of it, but sort of bringing us a bit more up to, to the present day. I know that you had a period of time um, working down in Dorset, was that right? Yeah, I worked at Holton Lee. I was the director of Holton Lee for 12 years. Mm -hmm. um, and it was great. It was a very interesting time. And Holton Lee at that time was um, was a greenfield site and it was a, just a blank canvas for me. And it was a wonderful project set up by a guy called Sir Thomas Lees. Mm -hmm. He was an evangelical Christian. His wife, their family, they ran a community. And they decided to set up because they'd provided camping facilities for a school of young disabled kids. They'd given space on one of their farms, which is a beautiful 350-acre site that led down to the shores of Pool Harbour. And they let these this school camp there. And uh, Tom Lee said to the teachers, oh, I hope you've had a wonderful time. And he said, and the teachers and the kids have had a great time, but we're all completely knackered, <laughs> you know, because we sleep in outdoors, we've got to help. You know, there's, it's really quite hard physically. Mm -hmm. uh, but the kids have loved being outdoors and in the woods and on the heathland and down to the reed beds and just for amazing sight. So they started to try and do something about it. And they did it trying to raise funds and using volunteers. And of course, the minute you start providing uh, um, physical care for people, you start hitting regulations. Mm. You know, the the sort of you get inspected, and people have to be trained, and all the rest of it. And it just became a bit. You know, they created this monster, but this wonderful, big, friendly monster, and they really needed a director to run it. So I was the first um, full-time what you might call professional director they got lots of professional people and good people work you know working there and involved there and volunteering there but it just needed somebody to grab hold of it and set out a business plan for it and get on with it and um, and I relished it I was pretty you know I was 23 years younger <laughs> or so than I am now yeah, you yeah. know so I got bags of energy and I just threw myself in it completely I built well, that's the first one of the very first things I did was raise some money to keep it going. It had three months running costs, so I spoke to Bert Massey, who was my previous boss at at, um, at Radar, and asked him where I could get some fast money. And he said, "Talk to my friend Peter Attenborough at the Rank Foundation." Mm -hmm. And Peter Attenborough came along, and he said, "Wow, this is amazing! I'm going to. I believe you can do what you tell him you're going to do. So we're going to give you." some money we're going to invest in you as a disabled leader wow that's really and, nice uh, yeah and he did that and uh i think he i think he really i think he really loved it there because it did change people's lives yeah and i, I picked and up my job was um, sorry i was going to say something i picked up there and um, there was a sort of part of the project was around spirituality and wellness and i think that's something yeah. that more recently has been a bit more lost in in society and i know it's something i've been yeah, yeah. exploring that you know i came out of uni i went to london i was trying to climb um the sort of career ladder that i generally thought that's what i should do and you know over time you sort of realize that money has its place in in the world and in happiness and fulfillment but only to a smaller degree than people realize but really we're fulfilled from learning and growing and being fulfilled and connected. And I was quite interested to hear that that was part of the project that you were doing there. Oh, yeah. No, it's amazing. There were four aspects to the work only that the charity did set up. And they'd really only become a charity because they realized they needed to be a charity. So they were on a massive learning curve. And Tom, but Tom Lees is a wonderful, wonderful man. And his wife, um, Lady Faisley's had just died, and that was when they realized, because she was a real driving force, they realized that they needed a director, mm -hmm. and they had to, you know, they had to pay the sort of going rate for a director, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And the four aspects, I mean, personal growth and spirituality was one of the aspects. The environment was the other. Disabled people was another, and the arts was another. So I looked at those, you know, four things and thought, well, I've got an arts background, 
I'd done quite a lot of work in disability because I'd worked for radar, I'd worked for the Citizens Advice Bureau, so I was, you know, conversant with sort of civil rights and human rights. I was conversant with disability, I was conversant with the arts. I grew up in the countryside, I knew a lot about, I was interested in birds, animals, wildlife, mm -hmm. you know, we didn't call it the environment then, it was just the place you lived, if you were curious, you learnt about trees, yeah. you know, I was in the scouts and the cubs, so I kind of felt I could manage all that, yeah. and I just said to them, well, you know, you're the personal growth and spirituality guys, you know, you, that's the bit you're going to have to do, you're going to have to teach me about that, because I'm, a, I'm a, you know, I stopped to search when I found lots more interesting things to do. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess it's that sort of okay. thing that we never, we never stop learning, do we? With a new, yeah. new role, and even in a role you've been in a long time, there's still new yeah. changes and new learning. So, I mean, I guess that sort of brings us in towards shape. So, how how come you yeah. moved on towards shape? You know, what what was the backstory yeah. to that change? Well, I set a ten-year plan at Holton Lee, mm -hmm. and part of that ten-year strategy was to build an art gallery and meeting place. Mm -hmm. And we did that, we built the Faith House Gallery, it was one of the first things I did, um, it won the best British building of 2002, uh, according to the Guardian newspaper, mm. uh, um, it, it won awards, it won more than one award, um, and it was a very modest but very beautiful building. I went on to turn a set of old redundant pigsties into four very beautiful artist studios and um, and a common room with toilets and showers and kitchen in it, and and uh, you can see these buildings on Tony Fretton, the architect's website. I did, you know, we commissioned Tony Fretton, who's a brilliant architect, mm -hmm. and and then I started to extend the barn because it was oversubscribed. We built the business up for um, you know what was so-called respite care, and I introduced an ethos of you know the social that it, we had to think of it as in a fully accessible hotel, it wasn't a medical institution, we didn't wear uniforms, it was not about care and control, it was about freedom mm. and expression. Yeah. So I had to make the 350 acres fully accessible, I got tramper buggies in, golf buggies that people could drive, you know, we had people driving other people around, it was a real empowerment place for disabled people, fully accessible bird hides, mm. you know, people would just get up, regardless of impairment, go off and do something interesting, there was all sorts of, you know, it was a massive amount of freedom for people. I used to have blind people driving the buggy, you know, and I just sit next to them and say, well, you drive, I'll passenger. <laughs> You can't do a lot of harm, we're just going across a massive field, you know, I say, put your left foot on there, if you want to stop, put your right foot on there, if I say left hand down, put left hand down, or your right hand down, put your right hand down, and uh, it was amazing, yeah. you know, that sounds really good. quite exciting, yeah. <laughs> having some blind person drive you across a rough old field, <laughs> feels a lot faster in a golf buggy when you think the person driving it can't see anything. I can imagine the adrenaline pumping pretty hard. <laughs> <laughs> Mind that tree. <laughs> yeah, that was cool, it was very freeing, it was very liberating. So the, yeah, so and, the, uh, yeah, I did that. brought you to London then? Well, I did that for 12 years and I think after you've after 10 years, you know, when you get into double digits, you've mm. got to think, I feel like I've been on this roundabout, when you go around the roundabout once, it's kind of interesting and exciting, and then, and my interest was building and developing it, you know, watching the buildings being built, negotiation with architects, raising the money to build it, then seeing the artists working in the studios for the first time, putting on the first exhibitions in Venus, massively exciting. And then I sort of realised that I was just running a place, and that, that wasn't what was turning me on, you know. Yeah. I wasn't, I didn't just want to run something, and I felt like I'd built it, and, um, I, you know, it was time for its next phase, and, um, you know, I, I think you you just pass things on, you yeah, know. Yeah. Tom Lee said, we are only custodians of this land, I mean, he owned it, but he put it in trust to the charity, that's really wise. You know, all of us are just custodians of things. The minute we move on, they become something else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. 
and I saw this job at Shape, you know, I mean, I've always, I'd always wanted to work in London, live in London, be in London, and I'd always, well, I'd worked for Shape, well, I was the chair of Northwest Shape up in Manchester way back in the 1980s before uh, before I went to Holton Lee. So I knew a bit about Shape, and, uh, and I always thought Shape had potential to be the most important disability-led arts organisation, and it had fantastic potential and um, and the job came up to be the chief executive here and I thought well I'll have a crack at it wow. so I had a crack at it and I got I got it and I've been here for the last 10 years so it's 10, 10 years done, at shape as well yeah just yeah. just just going on for 10 years at shape so again time for me to look at or oh, oh, double digits time to move on <laughs> so, so, um, um, so that's and um, not as sort of up on what shape does because you give them a little um, yeah, explanation of what you're up to at Shape in general. Yeah, sure. I mean, our role is to work alongside disabled people who, who are creative, in whatever way, and and it's it's a two-handed thing. So we look to, you know, empower disabled artists, whatever that word means. But you know, give confidence, find opportunities, encourage the development of their skills as artists and creatives. And on the other side is to work with institutions and organisations to say, look, we can't get these brilliant disabled artists into your places unless you are much more accessible or unless you know a lot more about how to make your organisation feel a lot more welcoming for disabled people. So we need to deliver disability equality training, access auditing. Mm -hmm. We need to work with you as consultants to make sure that the structures and systems you've put in place don't discriminate against us and how you you know, how you exhibit work or how you put on performance at theatre or creative writing, whatever it is in the creative sector, you know, we can help you be better at welcoming disabled people into that and we can help disabled people be better artists. Yeah, so that's what we really that, that's yeah, a double kind of two pronged approach really, isn't it? That you know the sort of the, the general social model um is all about the, the barriers of society. So you talk about the industry and educating them, removing the barriers. But I think something that yeah, depending on your whole viewpoint on the, the different models of disability, but basically that psychological barriers can be just as disabling and it's so vital that you know disabled people feel that actually the, the sky can be the limit and if they have the right um, inputs of education and confidence and peer support and those types of things that despite the difficulties they can still progress and do the things they really want to do. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I mean, two fundamental disability-related things happened to me um, that I that I look back out on and think, right, they're really important paradigm shifts for me. And when I was recovering in hospital in the spinal unit in Southport, this youngish guy whizzed past me in a wheelchair, and uh, he sort of I watched him whiz past. I I still hadn't really got my head around this disability thing. I saw a few people popping around in wheelchairs. It hadn't quite dawned on me that that was my future. So I was still sort of, you know, just out of intensive care, but sort of feeling like I was still a bit human, you know, but still pretty sedated and pretty knackered. Mm. And um, and this guy whizzed past and then he whizzed back and he went, oh, yep, I've not seen you before. Are you new? So I sort of said, yeah, I've just, I've been in intensive care. I just got in here. And the first thing he asked me, what's your level of injury? I said, what? It, what? And he said, what's your what, what's your level of injury? What's your spinal injury level? I, I've got no idea what this guy's talking about. Mm. So he just went to the bottom of my bed and looked at my nose. <laughs> and he went, oh, no, you'll be all right. He said, okay. He said, and he had a basketball on his knee. And he said, oh, oh I'm going to the gym doing some basketball training, he said in a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months when you're getting up and getting sorted out, get yourself down the gym. Mm. Do you like sports? I said, well, I'm kind of sporty. I played football, I played cricket. I loved the trampoline. I loved gymnastics. I was very agile. And he said, oh, we'll stop playing basketball. And that was a guy called Phil Craven. 
-hmm. And um, he's now called Sir Philip Craven, and he's the whatever he is of the World Wheelchair Games thing. He was at the opening of the Olympics and Paralympics. Mm -hmm. You may have seen him in a suit yeah. next to Seb Coe. And um, so he was just Phil Craven in those days. And he was the captain of my basketball team uh, because I went on to play basketball and it kept me fit. And I learned a lot of stuff about how to manage and look after yourself as a, as a crip and as a wheelchair user from people like Phil and all the other um, all the other great basketball players, Jerry Kinsella, who ran the Greenbank project in Liverpool, you know, another iconic disabled person. You know, these are great guys. Uh, um, whether you agree with their views and their politics, but you know, they they are motivators. Mm -hmm. And um, and uh, I learned a lot from that. And then when I was at university and looking you know, writing essays and looking in a more academic way at life, I came across somebody called Vic Finkelstein mm -hmm. at the Open University. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Vic really is the father of the social model, mm -hmm. though um, my, if Mike Oliver's listening, he'll say, no, I am mm -hmm. the father of the social model. But basically, uh, um, Vic and Mike Oliver really unpicked all disability stuff from a care and control medicalized approach and said hang on this is about barriers it's about it's physical barriers psychological barriers social barriers and we can alleviate disabled people's lives by changing things mm -hmm. but it is radical change yeah yeah and getting the social model working with Vic as a reader on the Open University and working with, you know, working with Colin Barnes, at, who was at Leeds University then, mm -hmm. was just a game changer for me completely. You know, and I saw disability from a political point of view, because sport, when you're younger, is just, okay, we hang out as a bunch of guys, we go to fantastic places, you know, we, we won the British Championships, we flew off to Switzerland, uh, um, you know, we played basketball, we hung out, there were, you know, wine, women and song, it was a lot less, you know, we were a lot less, well, Philip was sporty, but the rest of us were like, yeah, we're having a great time, mm. we're pretty fit young guys, even, you know, as wheelchair users, and we're having a great time, and uh, so it was kind of, yeah, it was fun. Exciting, good yeah. stuff. No, that's good. But I was politicised, you know, politicised <laughs> through 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 Vic, really. Yeah. And and then the art the artwork. Think about what I did as an artist, and what I did politically as a disabled person, and that actually you could use your life experience. And many artists do this. It's not. Um, I think disability arts is unique, and it you know only disabled artists can make disability arts. But many, many artists interrogate their lives and scrutinise the way they are, and that becomes root for the work. Yeah, that's and, great. Uh, that's what happened. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're going to have to start tying tying things up, Tony. So oh. I think there's a, there's a million more things I want to ask you and speak uh -huh. about. So we'll have to get you back on the podcast at a later date. Um, I think there's a lot more we we could explore around uh -huh. um, the politics side of it as well. But I mean, in terms of yeah, touching upon maybe more the artistic things you've been up to. Mm. Um, obviously, there's been lots of uh, awards personally. You know, you've been honoured by the Queen, I believe. I yeah I did yeah <laughs> and um, the, you know, lots yeah, of um, different um, installations and exhibitions. I know that one of the big achievements you're noted for was um, the Channel Four work around the London 2012. I mean, uh, from your perspective, is yeah. there one one award or one uh, piece of work you've done that stands out as the one you're most proud and, and happy with? Oh, I never do the proud word, Martin. No. I uh, it's da dangerous, the proud <laughs> word. I'm, I, everything you do, you can evaluate and you can think, oh, you know, what did I do that I could have done better? Mm -hmm. um, but I, I genuinely think that if I put a piece of work out there, then I'm happy for it to be critically obeyed by other people. 
mm-hmm. and I feel like I can it stands up for me yeah um, kind of creative it, dialogue it, and conversation as well yeah I mean I'm a slow producer of work I, I you know the world already has too many crap objects in it so I mean it, you know I don't really want to fill the world with even more rubbish so I really think that I'm not I don't churn out a lot of stuff and I do churn out things that I throw away or deconstruct or rip up or burn or generally throw away so um, I don't put a lot of stuff out there uh, and when I do I usually can justify it to myself you know regardless of how it's publicly yeah. um, acknowledged yeah, yeah, yeah. but the the Channel 4 thing was um, was high profile thing to do Mm-hmm. You know, so in that sense, you know, a lot of people saw it, and uh, a lot of people were aware of it. Uh, again, it was, you know, I think it was quite a subversive piece. It was called Monument to the Unintended Performer, and it really wasn't a celebration of the Olympics and Paralympics. It was a celebration of all the disabled people who weren't at the Olympics and Paralympics, but who were scrutinised by the world just by getting on a bus or walking down a street with a guide dog or a white cane yeah. or whatever it is we do, you know, when I get on a bus, whether you use the buses or not, but it almost feels quite theatrical. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's all this beep bop music and eventually if I'm lucky a ramp comes out and then everybody stares at me and then yeah. I see if I can get up the ramp or not <laughs> and then I look around and everybody suddenly looks back at their mobile phones. And I used to just go da da and give myself a round of applause often when I got on there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, deeply embarrassing for everybody else on the bus. And of course when you get off it's a bit of a performance as well. Yeah, and I was thinking um, so it really, you know, the plane as well when recently um of course. we were delayed because I had trouble getting my wheelchair under the plane and the pilot basically announced <laughs> you know, it was my fault that we were de- delayed, which is ridiculous. <laughs> so I, I know Well I hope you got on and said yeah, I mean, my answer to that is to say, you know, these buses are rubbish, or these planes, or these trains, or whatever it yeah, is. Absolutely, it's rubbish. You know, it's there's the a lot more to change. <laughs> yeah, and why? Why can't you know these? I usually say the the person who designed this vehicle is such a terrible designer. I don't know if ever it made it into production mm. when it's clearly unsuitable for the passage of travellers and passengers, okay. of which I'm one of many. Yeah, absolutely. So I always go on a bit of a rant when I. <laughs> I call access transport, and of course it is, it is designers. We should, you know, the Doug Pauley and the and the law courts and good on your Doug. But you know, the real issue there is about poor design. Mm-hmm. It's a it's an arts and creativity issue. You know, our designers need to design things that are much more accessible and functional. That's where the problem lies, not in buggies or wheelchairs or bus drivers. You know, these are all peripheral issues part of the conversation but actually the root and branch problem is in design design a bus that's accessible and flexible or a plane or a train for goodness sake guys come to it that's where that's where it's got to happen yeah no i totally agree with that whole other episode, I think, yeah, on, uh, the future of campaigning yeah. and social change. I think we'll have to, yeah, definitely have to do that one soon. But, ju- but just as yeah. parting words for today, I mean, is there anything coming up that you want to share with the listeners, any projects that they should look out for, get involved in, or any general sorts of advice? Well, there's any things I can think of, and the problem, Martin, is like, I'm an old guy, and when you get me talking, I just never know when to shut up, as you've already discovered. But, of course, my life is transitioning now, because I'm moving from Chief Executive of Shape. I'm going to be the Chair of Shape. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do much more sculptural work. Okay. I've got, well, touch wood. I'm hoping to be able to develop an interesting commission that I'm negotiating right now, so I don't want to say too much about it if it doesn't happen. Sure. But um, you know, I'm hoping to continue to do work with people like the Tate Gallery and the British Council and the Arts Council. As you know, I still want to develop as a sculptor, and uh, I still want to develop my own my own work as an artist, really. But I don't want to lose track of work, so I'll still be doing consultancy in the disability world. Sure. So I won't. Hopefully, I won't be disappearing. No, well, um, I'll be around. 
as things come along, obviously give us a shout on Disability Horizons and we can, you know, make sure the listeners and the readers get to hear what you're up to. But um, in the meantime, yeah. thank you very much for your time today, Tony. It's been really, yeah. really nice chat, really interesting. And do you know, Martin, I just wanted to say, it was great to see you on the gondola in Venice. <laughs> and you were a massively brave guy to go to Venice as a wheelchair user. Yeah. It's, a, it's the most beautiful city in the world, but it's it's an access nightmare. Yeah. But do you know what? I just thought Alessandra and that gondola that doesn't go anywhere, you know, it has to come back to where it sets off from. But his enthusiasm and passion and social justice to push that little project out there. I just think that's a massive thing to do Definitely. about us having allies. Yeah, absolutely. you know, it's great to have allies like him. And uh, people say, oh, it's just a small thing. I say, yeah, but it's the small things that that grow into the big things. You know, he could be maybe pushing on onto something there. Yeah, well, so it's lovely to see you. Yeah, thank, thank you for yeah. that. I was going to say I've used that example a lot with um, giving talks. It's like, look, there is myself in a 150 kilogram wheelchair on a gondola and that just says it all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah completely. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it's been great talking to you, Martin. Likewise, we'll speak again soon. Yeah. Take care. See you soon, man. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Wow, that was a long one, hey? I think um, of all the different points I'd like to pull out about the interview with Tony, um, the biggest thing for me really is just his zest for life. The fact that dragged on for a little while, uh, you know, maybe you were struggling to hang in there towards the end if you got busy, busy schedules, but he's got so much fun and enjoyment for life. Um, it was just impossible to to cut him off and to bring it to a close when he had so many really nice stories to share. Um, in terms of particular points, I think really it was just about how he was able to go through the different stages of his life, definitely growing and improving as he went and picking on you know different areas of life that he knew about himself that he enjoyed um, and always being ready to, to move on to new challenges every 10 years. I think that's quite uh, an important thing that we don't get bored and stale in our own kind of uh, comfort zones as well. Um, but overall, um, just a, a nice guy, as I said at the beginning, um, I don't know if I mentioned before, I actually had an interview um, to be involved with the marketing team at Shape a long, long time ago. And although I didn't get the job because I was too young and too inexperienced, Tony actually went to the effort of writing me a, a handwritten note to encourage me to keep going and trying and how impressed he was with how I interviewed and all the rest of it. So that's just another insight into the kind of really pleasant, nice person that Tony is and just makes you feel very warm, like you just want to kind of crack on with your own journey and uh, keep overcoming those obstacles that always are there, um, but in the end to try and make light and enjoy day-to-day -day life. So thank you to Tony for his time today. Um, as always, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, follow my blog on martinsibby.com and I'm on all the Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn social media channels. And um, also don't forget to check out Disability Horizons and Disability United around lifestyle and campaigning topics respectively. And uh, we'll see you on the next episode, which will be episode number four, with WizKids CEO Ruth Owen. So until then, take care and bye-bye.